Light one up. For the cannabis culture. Hello and welcome to the To Be Completely Blunt podcast. We are your hosts. I am Stephanie. I'm Rick. In today's episode, we got a chance to chat with Timothy McBride, also known as the Saltwater Cowboy. He was a pot hauler back in the late 70s and throughout the 80s down in the Caribbean. So he was considered an outlaw at the time. But, you know, it's people like him who are the reason why we have gotten to the place we are today with cannabis and its consumption. Now, we only touch on the surface of everything he was involved in because he has a really big story. But he does have a book available that tells you the whole story, which you're going to hear more about through the show so let's get to it hope you enjoy today's episode with timothy mcbride today we are chatting with timothy mcbride also known as the saltwater cowboy how's it going today tim hi guys going great man Hey, thanks so much for meeting with us today. I know we've chatted before, gotten to know a little bit about your story, and it's yep. a big one. You got a big background. Uh, so we usually like to start off with something along those lines. Could you give us kind of a summary as to how your cannabis journey got started? And I, of course, we don't want you to give away too much because there is a book that we want to tell people about so that way they can read a little bit more into you. Yeah, you know, and that's that's a great idea, you know, and uh, and and with regards to that, you know, and and you know, some of the length of the of of the shows that I do can be can be rather long, but six hours at sometimes because not only do I speak of what was written in the book, but I was originally contracted for an eighty thousand word document, and I wrote two hundred and fifty thousand words and wow. shrunk and condensed it down to the version that you read, you know, right now. So there's a whole lot other than what you read in the book, but you, um, a lot of the more relevant stuff and in, in the, the path and the course of how everything, you know, went from, you know, evolved from my beginnings and my endings and, you know, and the ending of the Caribbean cannabis coming into the United States and that sort of thing was the story that I tell. Mm-hmm. I forced gumped my way through a whole lot of this stuff, man. And mm-hmm. I tripped from one thing into another without, you know, I, I had no aspirations of when I did come to Florida. Finally, I, you know, my father was 82nd airborne in North Carolina, moved to the Midwest for a job. I took, uh, took my high school years up, up there. And then I split. And then next thing you know, I'm in Florida working on the stern of a stone crab boat, pulling traps with, you know, one of my best friends and the captain, there's only three of us on the boat. And, it didn't take much to get me going. He called me one day and said, Hey man, you know, he said, I'm going to Florida t- tomorrow to work, you know, on a boat, driving down there to work on a boat. You want to go? I said, hell yeah. So I just packed my shit and off I went <laughs> and I didn't give it a second thought because I was always the kind of guy that never wanted to look back on any opportunity or perceived opportunity and, and kick myself in the ass and say, damn, I wish I'd have done that. Yes. Yeah, right. Smart. Well, smart way to live. That's the only way to live really. I, in my personal opinion, you know, yeah, go hard. So yeah. So you were you were stone crabbing, and from stone crabbing you were introduced to something more interesting. Yeah, actually, I was introduced to it before the stone crabbing, and in 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 the way it was you know presented to me, 
um, this little island that we went to, island, two islands connected by a causeway, and together the total population is Everglades City and Chukaluski Island. Um, even today, the population is 400, around 400 people. It was just under uh-huh. 500 people during that time. And you'd always had always heard rumors and stories about, you know, smugglers and this and that, you know, and all kinds of stuff. But that's all it ever was until I actually got involved in it. And how that happened was by getting a job on that boat. You know, my um, there's there's two crew members on the boat that actually do the work and the captain who operates the vessel. Well, they had an opening on the boat. So I go to work and they, they impart to me how the scenario takes place when you're pulling the traps. You get up like just as soon as you can see, you start pulling buoys, you know, because there's, you know, we're pulling 600 of these fucking things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we want to get home before dark, you know, <laughs> and that sort of thing. So I knew that the way it had been imparted to me that that's how, how it was. So I get on the boat and I, you know, my first day on the, on the boat, you know, we chug out there. And it's like you get up and, and get on board about two, three in the morning, four in the morning, depending on how far the boat has to travel and climb in the bunk, which is in the wheelhouse where the captain's working. Mm-hmm. And I wake up and the sun's already up and I'm thinking, well, they said they started like, you know, before the sun, I mean, just as the sun's coming up and I rolled over and I looked out of the bunk and, Captain Billy, he's got a big grin on his face and he goes, Timmy, he says, we're not going to pull stone crab traps today, buddy. He says, we're going to run offshore later on this afternoon and unload a pot boat from Columbia. Oh <laughs> and I said, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> All on board for it right so, away. <laughs> yeah. You know, they saw it was, you know, my, my buddy knew about it and it was a bit of a tongue in cheek sort of thing to them, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and they just, you know, kind of shanghai me and sprung it on me. Always, they knew I'd be cool with it and stuff. So my first day working, you know, for that captain on that boat for stone crabbing, I never saw one trap, man. <laughs> we went offshore and, um, you know, just at, at, you know, a couple hours before sundown, we, we approached this boat and uh, wound up putting that first time out, we put 15 tons on the boat of bales, uh, bales of weed from Columbia. And we brought it in, and uh, of course it was dark by the time we got it in. And this, that's because the whole scenario has to happen between sundown and sunup. Mm-hmm. And by scenario, I mean us go get it, bring it in. Little boats grab it from us because now we're so heavy that we're we're drafting too much water to get through the pass, and we wouldn't want to do that anyway. So little boats come out, 15, 20 of them, with two guys on each boat, one guy running the boat, another guy just a mate that's jumps on with us, and they just start unloading. I mean everybody's throwing and kept taking and making as many trips into this, into the Island we lived on Chukaluski uh, amongst a place called the 10,000 islands. And if you look this thing up or Google it, you'll see, you'll see an aerial view of actually what the 10,000 islands look like. And it's just literally a labyrinth of 10,000 islands. And this is where we played as kids. We knew these ins and outs and shallows and backwaters and twists and turns. Like we know the back of our hands. So if we got in there, we, you weren't catching us, you know, it was that sort of thing. <laughs> It was a beautiful labyrinth, you know, Mother Nature saw fit to pull it right in our backyard and we made use of it. But um, we'd be take it through the pass and through the shallows and take it onto the island that was populated, Chukaluski, where everybody lived. Mm-hmm. And um, 129 acre island and literally put the load of bales into one or two of my buddy's houses that we've literally taken the furniture out of and start sticking them in the bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, dining room, bedroom, you know, anywhere you could stick a bale of pot in the house, you know, that's where it would be. And then mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, and to get them to Miami, we would be driving them to Miami the next day in vehicles. And some of those vehicles would come and get loaded that night. And the owners would take the car, the car, the truck, the van, the, you know, whatever the case may be, Bronco with blacked out windows and park it in the front yard or park it in the driveway there in town and just leave it. 
mm-hmm. you know, they're in you know, broad daylight. And then the next day, you know, everybody had a, what we call a two meter radio. And uh, that two meter radio had a five digit combination of numbers that you could put, you know, different combination, which at that time was virtually unscannable. Mm-hmm. And we were sending these, you know, these cars and vans out loaded on, you know, in intervals to Miami mm-hmm. and sending them to a plaza where we have a guy working with the Cuban people that actually own the stuff. We never wanted to own the stuff. We never wanted to sell the stuff yeah. because it was too much of a pain in the ass. We got paid decent enough money. And I mean, there's only just so much money that you can deal with, man. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and if we have some time, we'll get to that. It was a pain. It could, it could actually literally be a pain in the ass because you just can't spend money. You know, mm-hmm. now you're being a now you're being foolish and, and, and an idiot and you stick out and you just you're done. You don't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We were learning. We were learning ways of, of uh, you know, on our own. Plus, the, the adults were teaching us how, you know, ways to spend money and not have anything to show for it. Mm. You know, just you know, a lot of fun shit. I think the thing that we like to do best was go over to South Beach for, you know, for four days and, and uh, every night take the clubs, take a, whatever club we're into, just take the tab. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, carry two, three, four hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars amongst us it, with the sole uh, intent of coming home with just enough money for gas to get home, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to get rid of the cash, you know, because it was just piling up. But nevertheless, yeah. you know, back to the scenario, you know, we would, uh, you know, we brought that boat in and, you know, they took the load and we went offshore and cleaned up. And the next day we pulled a few traps and we came in you know, late, later that afternoon and, um, uh, got, you know, ready and got up the next morning, like three 30, I think it was like that. We're ready to go pull. I wake up again the next morning, sun's up again. <laughs> I lean out there and the captain said, we're going for 22 tons tonight, Timmy. <laughs> so <laughs> first, first two days ever working on this crab boat, I never saw one trap, but I did see, you know, multi, multi tons of weed, dude. What did that smell like? I'm curious. How was the grade? I'm just curious there. Yeah. Down in Columbia at that time. What was, was it, was it quality? Um, well, for the, for that period, for that time, you know, in, in cannabis history, there were some strains being grown in other in other parts of the Caribbean, say in Jamaica, where they learned to pay more attention to what the what the Rastas call the virgin bud. They would try to pay more attention to, you know, you know, not cross pollinating. A lot of it would be. I mean, you'd have some seeds, but you know, the less you can, you know, avert from that, you know, then you gain a little bit more potency. Some of the higher elevation strains, like in Santa Marta and Colombia and the Puerto Roja region, where the price is, is and the potency is there and the price dictates that, where I'm buying the Colombian red bud, you know, and, and the, uh, you know, the Colombian strains that were the uh, indica strains that were grown in the lowlands for $10 a pound. But if I had, if I wanted to, you know, the, you know, like Colombian gold or the Punta Roja, like I was speaking of, you'd have to go inland a little bit further to get it. But now you're talking 40 to $60 a pound, but you're making up for it in potency and in, and in price and volume, you know, so it kind of, there's a little bit of a wash there, but you can only get so much from those inland higher elevations because you can't bring it all. I mean, that's a hell of a truck to the coast if you want any significant weight of it. That's yeah. why I have a story written in the book about having a, a you know, a DC three loaded with 6,000 pounds of that shit, because that's for one thing that was right as much as that plane could hold. Yeah. You know, I mean, these guys were like daredevils, dude, that, I mean, they were right on the cusp of this thing going down. That's how much weed they had on the plane. Plus they're not able to cultivate that kind, you know, and they do a similar thing that the, 
you know, the Rastafarian and the, or the Ethiopian Zions were doing in Jamaica was trying to create that virgin bud and that, that purple plant they called it in Colombia, you mm-hmm. know, but um, on the average, you're talking about probably, you know, the weed average, depending on where, you know, and I bought a lot of shit out of Colombia. Every time I went down, I would, you know, ultimately I started buying, you know, the first couple of loads were just test runs for me. But then, you know, once they figured out, you know, the amount of money that they're making, incredible amounts, sums of money off of $10 a pound and is selling in Miami for anywhere between 500 and 70 and 750 a pound. These guys are making hand over fist money and I'm just getting paid to deliver it to them. Mm-hmm. And we're making millions as it is. And that's enough. You know, I mean, yeah. like I said, it's right. a pain in the ass. What a rough yeah. problem so, to have. <laughs> yeah, 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 no shit. But, um, uh, as, as far as potency, we're probably on the average of the red, the, the Colombian red bud that we were dealing with was probably somewhere hovering around between eight and 12 percent, maybe. You know, yeah. that's in good. Those days, because, yeah. In those days, that was a bad, you know, yeah. but then you had some some shit that was down around in the seven and the eight range, you know, but right. you could always tell that stuff and you could tell it in a very distinctly. And I, you know, I wish they'd make a cologne of this shit because, you know, every time I get a you know, a hint of what I think smells like a bale of weed. I guess, you know, I just, you know, it's like an African <laughs> to me, man. You know, it, you get that, of course, that obvious burlap smell, but yeah. it's also a, a, a sweet, almost with a hint of m- not musk, but more, more verging on like a frankincense kind of a, kind of a smell to it. Just that, that deep Colombian, what you would yeah. get in a, in a real dank type of an indica or a, or a sativa smoke when you do that last exhale through your nose and you get that that last aftertaste you mm-hmm. get that little bit of hint in that aftertaste of weed you know right like yeah. that that's how the that's how a lot of those colombian strains you know <clears throat> left you because cool. i mean at that time we weren't dealing with i mean jesus every time you turn around somebody's claiming and naming a different strain right well, in those days there were only like six Right. Strength. Well, they were di- they were dictating. So, like in Colombia, they were dictating segments of that area areas to grow, right? And they were right. utilizing those areas, and it was under rule from whoever, right? And however, well, whoever was in charge at the time. Certain strains. I mean, there's a lot of different families that I worked with. I didn't work with any cartel or any bullshit like that. You know, because mm-hmm. people are always talking about, well, you're fucking around with cartels, you know, thanks for, you know, uh, you know, contributing to that world. Well, no, it wasn't that way. It was families uh-huh. and different families throughout the northern region of Colombia are growing for different, you know, for one, one or two or three particular individuals. They're growing their stuff for this guy. My guy happened to be closer to the Cartagena. He was just uh, just south of Bronquia Peninsula, Bronquia City between Santa Marta and, and Cartagena. He was in the, in the jungles region right there. And he had growers all around and all around him that could supply just what we need. Cause I mean, I'm, I've been down there at, at times and looked, you know, through the mountain Valley and seen as far as I could fucking see just buds, bud tops and, and growing up the side of the side of the mountain like this, man. I mean, just as far it's as awesome. you can see. So, you know, not only that you have, different families growing weed and they have their own different style or they're in different soils and, you know, and things like that. And those, those type of things, as you know, as a, you know, in the growing process, you know, that type of ingredient with regards to soil and elevation, things like that have a different, uh, have a difference on the type of material you're growing. 
Right. So some would be more stronger and more potent or have a different taste than others. And would been my job, like I was when I was in Columbia buying this shit, I would go through mountains. I mean, literally, they look like Incan ruins. Uh, I would have to try this stuff and taste it to see which was the sweetest, which was the nicest, you know, and that stuff, you know, out of all these bales. And I'd say, you know, how many of those you got? And they'd kick me down, you know, maybe two, three hundred of them. And they're 60, 70, 80 pounds a piece. And then the guys are weighing them behind me. So when I get what I want, when I'm down there to buy, say if I'm there to buy 100,000 pounds and I go through that, I'm actually checking this stuff for quality as best as they can just by smoking it. You know, mm-hmm. that was our, that was our certificate of analysis during those days was, you know, oh, yeah. you <laughs> know product, product tester. Why <laughs> wouldn't you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And did they did they provide did these families and these uh, these people do like a, a full scope or was it mainly just packaged flour? Did they do like hash or anything like that? No, the industry wasn't that refined at that time. It was more on the growing of the of the plant itself aspect. And there wasn't really anybody out there trying to make it, you know, improve upon it. It was grow it as fast as you could, bale this shit. And what they would do is they would put it on mules and and mule it, it backpack it into these areas under these, you know, jungle canopies where they've got two by fours together in racks with chicken wire that they're mm-hmm. laying the stuff out onto, these buds out onto, and they're turning them and flipping them. And there's a nice breeze coming through there. So they're drawing and curing the material and through the through the chicken wire below, the water leaves are dropping off. Yeah. You know? so then they just take them and strip them like literally strip them like this into piles put them into bags and you know in the earlier days where they were just it seemed like they were just stuffing it with their foot yeah you know because the, the compressed bale didn't start coming around until about 1980 you know 1979 1980 and that was you know not everybody was doing it at that time and the shit was nasty sometimes man i mean i've dumped more shit out of my boots than any 20 guys can smoke in their fucking lifetime man. Sure. <laughs> it was that nasty we were literally sweeping it into piles on the deck to clean after the load you know mm-hmm. the little boats would take it from us we'd go offshore and clean up we're literally sweeping this shit into piles and with a nice shovel you know shoveling it overboard you know is that crap (laughs) sharks are getting high as the as the evolution of the industry came about that then you come to the compressed bales and now they're all you know all the same size and they're all uh you know they all weigh the same you know and they stack nicer you know and that sort of thing so how the bigger the loads and hence the more money was being made Mm -hmm. so so how long was this this run until you hit your point of getting arrested 10 years okay okay yeah, 1979 to 1989 i was i was arrested in 1988 but i still had work left out there that i had i couldn't just not finish nice. <laughs> i'm under indictment with 160 years mandatory life and you know 16 million dollars in fines and you know i'm out on a surety bond because there was just too many of us indicted that day and i'm off finishing three jobs that i Started. You're like, hold <laughs> up, I got stuff to do before we go yeah, through I, with I, this. <laughs> I got a little dance, man. You know, <laughs> epic. 
but um, yeah, it was just, you know, the, the, the story I think is primarily a story that needs to be told in, in a way that uh, lets people know that there was a nonviolent way in which this could be done and mm-hmm. done in a spectacular way. I mean, we, the people I was, was considered a third generation potholer. And that means that the guys and the gals that I grew up with as kids, you know, and I say kids, we were in our, you know, early twenties, you know, just turned twenties, you know, that area. And they our uncles and fathers and older cousins learned from the generation before them and the grandpas and, and like that. So they handed it down to them and then they handed it down to their kids. And then when they all went to prison, that's when us kids took over. Or actually, yeah. when I had the fortuitous you know, opportunity to step in and we don't get into that because that's a long story, but you'd have to read about that one. Yeah. Um, I was the only one out of any of the crews in Naples and are on the southwest coast of Florida that ever saw the big dudes, Colombians over in Miami, though only the older generations and the Daniels brothers that were putting the jobs together and working everybody, only those people saw these people. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity, and I'll just tell you real quickly, um, we brought in 55 tons one night during a run of every single night of 28 nights, and we were doing 30 tons, 40 tons you know, yeah. 35 tons. And then, and we did this 55 ton, 110,000 pounds, just to see if we could do it. Cause it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was about getting this shit in and getting this job over with mm-hmm. <laughs> but during that course of that time to a tune of about 1.6 million pounds in 28 nights. Oh my God. So, you know, it, it right through Naples, Goodlands and, and Chalkowski and Everglades city, you know, there was balls to the wall. But during that time, you know, a boat like ours and working like we could, we could put 40,000 pounds on our boat and run with it, you know. So we would work two two nights, three nights, and then we'd have to take a couple nights off because, dude, that's some, I mean, we're talking about moving, you know, 800 to 1,070 pound fucking bales, sometimes twice a night. That's some pale ass work, dude. And if the yeah. stone cabin didn't make a man out of you, this shit would. Right. So, you got, you know, you it would kill you. So that's why everybody out of a town of just under 500 people, half the town was involved in it simply for that reason, because you couldn't work. I mean, everybody had to work, you know. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's that, kind of that, impressive. <laughs> then it would come back around to us. But I did the 55 ton night. I was offshore bringing that stuff in and I was off the next couple of days. So me, I got out and I went to the, one of the houses because I think we had seven houses full to the rim, I mean, to the front door full of weed on this island. I mean, we couldn't get any, I mean, we could have gotten, we were emptying these houses and filling them that next night, just as quick as we can get them empty. Yeah. That's how this whole machine worked. And I just walked over to one of the houses that day to see well, how everything was going on. And and the big boss goes, hey, Timmy, come here, dude. It's just, I got a question for you. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, and because um, there's Winnebago that he had handed me and my buddy Jimmy a chainsaw on a wrecking bar three days prior to that on our last, you know, little hiatus from the pothole and, and, and had us strip out everything. And this thing had 125 miles on it. That was it. It was brand new. 40 foot Winnebago strip everything from the windows down out of it. Then we took the seats, the captain chair seats and the t- cabinets, counters and everything. And all the, he said, and all the crab cabinets and the curtains leave all that shit there. So when you looked at this thing, all you saw was cabinets, curtains, but if you got happy to get up there and looking like this, it, it would be bales all the way across to the other window on the other side. <laughs> they put 11 and a half thousand pounds of bales in this thing, put airbags in the springs and inflated them. So this thing would sit nice staunch like it should. 
Mm-hmm. And we actually had to pull one of the bales out so you could sit down in there between them and drive them because like we tore the seats out, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm talking to Daryl and he goes, Tim, I need you to do me a favor, drive this thing over to Miami because it can't go to the spot where everything else was going. It has to go right straight to the to the stash house, you know. And and very few of us ever only know where that place is. And I need somebody I can trust to do this. All the other vehicles, the cars and the trucks and the vans and, you know, and these whatever 30 some odd drivers we'd have, you know, making runs back and forth to Miami to a plaza or, or a, you know, strip mall somewhere where we'd have a guy standing there going, you know, pointing out that's us, that's us, that's us, that's us to a Cuban guy. And they would have somebody get in it. Our guys would get out of it go window shop they'd go empty it bring it back our guys would get in it and go this is what the united states government ultimately called a dead drop we were doing a dead drop in the parking lot with the shit well you got a winnebago that's got you know eleven and a half thousand pounds of this shit in there and you get within 40 feet of it you can smell it i was wondering how you guys were attempting to potentially mask that but it it sounds like you didn't exactly Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, I can't go to this plaza. It's got to go to that house. So yeah. he needed something to trust to go to that house. Plus, I had to drive a car full of money back that night once the load stopped coming in, you know, for the evening. Mm. And I, you know, I did really didn't want to do it. I just made 75 grand bringing that 155, you know, or that 110,000 pounds in the night before, you know, four boats took us to do that. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll give you 35 grand, you know, and it's only a two hour drive to make 35 grand and i reluctantly only because of who he was i said yeah okay that's how i wound up meeting those guys skipping forward now everybody gets busted the older generations operation everybody's one comes in in 83 operation everybody's two in 84 they take the visible guys and the adults and everybody that was teaching us kids the shit you know giving us the work all hauled their asses away and now there's nobody doing any of the work well almost four weeks exactly to the day I get a knock on my door. I'm living in a house in Golden Gate, which is just north of Everglades City between that and Naples. And I open it up and there's this Cuban guy I met at the house. I was there that day. He goes, Timmy, he's like, dude, we got work to do. What's backing up? Can you do this shit? And I just said, hell yeah. You know? <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went back and, you know, the infrastructure was there because, I mean, all those kids, all those guys and gals, we were the ones doing the work, you know, mm-hmm. the adults aren't humping these goddamn bales, these thousand bales a night, you know, and us kids are doing that shit. Mm-hmm. What yeah. I had to figure out and, and learn mm-hmm. from the older generations as they're getting out of prison and, you know, some of the guys that were, you know, were around was, where do I go to, what do I, how do I buy the shit? Who do I talk to? I mean, I needed to know all of that. I knew the mechanics of the machinery. And our sophisticated methods by which we did it, but where do you go to Colombia? Where do you go in Jamaica? Where do you go in Central America? And this I get. So I had all these connections inherited to me. Hmm. So they kind of had a heads up that they were going to be working again and that somebody would be meeting a, me, the guy named Tim. Mm-hmm. That's all I knew. And that's how I wound up, you know, you know, headed to Colombia. But my, my first trip flying in there, that's in a book. That's hilarious. You got to read that part. Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um yeah, and uh, it was family and generational as well. All around the Caribbean, in Jamaica, we worked with one family. Colombia, we worked with one family. In Belize, mm-hmm. we worked with one family. You okay. know, even in Venezuela, you know, we worked with one family. Not this cartel bullshit. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was that was Cali. That was Medellin. That was, you know, Griselda Blanco and her fools over in Miami. You know, mm-hmm. fucking with that shit. 
we were family and generational. And that's why as kids, we were brought in to do the goddamn work because the adults didn't want to do it. Nobody was carrying guns. Never once ever did I see a fucking gun. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's the message, like I was saying earlier, that I would like everybody to understand that at that time, you know, but particularly now that they have the, the ability to make a legal choice, a an informed legal choice. Part of that information needs to come from a guy like me so they can understand that the humble origins of this plant aren't indicative of what they're seeing taking place on the Mexican border. That's <laughs> that's cartel shit. That's crazy, stupid ass shit going on in there. Right. Go back a little bit further before they took it out of the hands of people for three decades or four decades nearly that never fired one shot at them mm -hmm. and learned how it could have been done by families and generations mm -hmm. of families <clears throat> without gun violence. Because at that level, the amount of money to be made, Jesus, criminy, there weren't, there was no violence. You yeah. can. You're going to take a guy that can take $300,000, there's $300,000 of your money to South America, buy 30,000 pounds of Colombian red bud, premium red bud, which was what everybody was smoking those days. And by the time I, and, and between eight and 14 days, depending on any unforeseen weather events, whether that through the Caribbean would take me eight days to get from South America to Miami. And by the time I've done that, I've turned that. $300,000 into no less than $15 million in eight days. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My fee for a job that size, which was just like 5 million. I just made this guy $10 million. Plus he got his 300,000 back. Mm -hmm. You think he's shooting at me? Dude, he no. can't get money nope. fast to go back. <laughs> go do it again. <laughs> and that's the beginning of it, where it starts getting stupid and the violence comes in and what people are more inclined to gravitate to and 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 misconstrue the context of the whole industry is when these punk gang punk fucks from philly or chicago or new york or cleveland cincinnati philadelphia boston wherever they come from and they spend two three four hundred thousand dollars on a load of weed that they've got they actually paid for that's what they got their money involved in that you lose that shit. That's when they get stupid and dangerous on you. Yeah, mm -hmm. right, right, exactly. And and what you were doing there was sustaining families that were living in very rural conditions with no income, no source of uh, supporting themselves, and you helped right. them do that. You well, know, so yeah, the back and forth of that is. Yeah. With that regard, what what was taking place in Everglades at that time, and to the generations prior to this, what you know, what got them started as being what is now considered the hub of smuggling marijuana in North America, Everglades city uh, was the simple fact that during the earlier years of the, you know, the early sixties, the United States government tried to extend the boundaries and created the Everglades national park. And we're now beginning to put up, you know, you know, bans on what type of nets you can use and, you know, how big is a mesh in the net and how many fish you can catch and, and what time of year you can catch them and putting restrictions on the, on the lives of people that grew up here, people that learned how to eke out a living out of nothing, you know, that would be comparable to taking some asshole from, you know, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, New York, or someplace like that, drive them halfway down Tamiami trail between Naples and Miami and let them out and say, okay, go earn a living. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> really like that you start taking shit like that away from people's throat and start cutting their throats that way they have you know and they've got an alternative sitting right there what the fuck did you expect them to do 
Mm-hmm. You right. Know, 90% of the guys, the old, the old hats that did this shit, they never even smoked the shit. Mm-hmm. Ooh, mm-hmm. Supplementing the fucking income that the government was trying to cornhole them out of. Right. Yep. Really, you know, I'm justifying or I'm not trying to, you know, um, um, and, and endorse smuggling in any way. You know, of course, we were outlaws. We didn't necessarily agree with your laws. We worked outside of it. So I mm-hmm. don't like the term criminal. Criminals, right. in my estimation, will do whatever it takes to get the job done. And they will mow you down and cut you down and shoot you and do whatever they need to do to do that. We weren't that way. Yeah. You know? yeah. Or citizens on a mission, you know, to sustain life. I mean, it's no it's a, a lot of things like even in the inner cities where oppression has been for 20, 30 years. People have found a way to develop their lifestyle and it yes. may not, it may be pretty much against the grain, but it is right. what they need to live. You know, I mean, right. And look at exactly. where we're at today. Yeah. It takes people like you to initiate the process to get us to where we are. And again, you were obviously going about things in the right. most moral way possible for, you know, what the law was at the time. And I was yeah. taught that way as a kid mm-hmm. and most of us growing up in the industry such as that and in and, and managing and handling this the sheer volume of material that we were handling. We didn't know anything different than, other than that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 20 ton, 25 ton loads were all we knew as kids. You yeah. know, that's, that's why when I went to write this book, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my buddies, you know, they're saying like, everyone hear about this. Who don't, you know, that was just something that we did, you know, because to us, it was like, We've got another, you know, we've got a boat out there with that's got, you know, upwards of 300,000 pounds on it. It's mm-hmm. going to take maybe three, maybe four nights to unload it. Okay, let's go to work. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, yep. And 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 what um, Rick was talking about, nail on the head, man. I mean, if you needed, if you wanted to smoke weed during those days, you literally had to go somewhere else to another country, load a giant boat full of that shit. And bring it back for everybody to enjoy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only way it was happening. And and I'm always fond of saying that, and I even say this in the book that we weren't the only ones hauling pot, man. I mean, there were pot haulers all over the place. You know, God mm-hmm. bless them. That's a smith. Whether their shit got in or didn't make it, you know, whatever circumstances, do you have the balls to go for it? Good for you. Right. Um, but my story and parts uh primarily is, you know, a, a town basically forced to do what we needed to do to, to, to maintain our homes and our families and our, our livelihoods. Um, but we're able to do it for um, nearly 40 years and three generations in, and integrated into that way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, stone crabbing merged with that and integrated into a way of life that spanned those generations. And, and for all that time, nobody had a fucking clue. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know about you, but if I could, I could sit down and smoke a big flat spliff and eat a whole pile of blue crabs in a heartbeat. So <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> that sounds great. We used, to, we used to bring our cats and stone crabs, you know, they have to be cooked every evening when you bring them in, your cash mm-hmm. has to come in every evening mm-hmm. and you take them right from the boat to the fish house and they're put in boiling water and they're boiled. They're cooked right then and there poured into these sorting pans. You speak the large stainless sorting trays that have cool water in them mm-hmm. and they sorted by graded large, medium jumbo, you know, small like that. And to sit there and, you know, crack one open and warm right out of that cooker and dunk it in butter. You got it is. I mean, dude, it, I, it got to a point where I almost got sick. Of eating them, man. But, 
it's just really, really sweet meat, you know, and we, yeah. you know, the catches and we were doing pretty good, you know, I mean, um, when it came to the money aspect of it, you could live to a certain degree to, a, you know, of good means because mm-hmm. we were you know, fishing and stone crabbing was rather lucrative in those days. We had 6,000 traps and spread out over six different areas that we could pull 600 a day. And catching, if the catch was good, those traps were expensive and they paid good. I could, you know, I'd average $1,200 to $2,500 a week during season. Oh, and wow. then, you know, in the 80s, early 80s, that was monster money. And yeah. did you say you were getting this only in cash form? Well, no, getting paid, you know, for working on the boat, I get a check. You would actually get a check for that. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was all, yeah. Because I would not only would I get paid commission on the, uh, you know, so much on uh, percentage of the catch, but I was getting a daily wage as well. Okay. Nice. So I was getting a legitimate, a legitimate check every week for my cut of the catch plus, you know, my wage. And that's where I get 12, 1400, 2500, you know, 20, uh, you know, like that. And yeah. you could live according to a certain amount of means, you know, because even though it was seasonal that's still dude that's a lot of money in those days you know yeah that's up where it started getting you know hard to deal with was when you know you do a job and and a lot of people's misconception about the jobs the way i explained them is that when i take this stuff to miami i don't get paid right away Mm -hmm. i have to wait till that load begins to sell then Mm -hmm. i get paid out of the sales of that product Mm. So it could be two weeks or so before I start to see any money at all. So as a kid growing up, there would be, you know, the first lag in money. And then by that time, a week or two had gone by. I'd done three jobs in the meantime. And then after a while, I'm getting paper bags of tens and of thousands of dollars shoved at me that I don't remember for jobs. I don't remember having done. You know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was just crazy. It was stupid like that, you know? So, wow. Uh, Spending what we could spend was important, but, you know, you could get crazy doing certain things, you know, if we, like on the island, you drive out there and there's just a lot of trailers, you know, they're really, you know, they're kept up nice, you know, but nothing out of the ordinary about them until you open the door and walk inside mm. and you have the finest Berber carpet and, you know, the, the leather furniture and the latest electronics and the appliances, you know, and hi-fi gear and just the coolest shit, you know all hidden from view inside the trailer because you're living like a freaking <laughs> king, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. But oh. uh, a lot of fun times doing that, you know, but what we were doing, there was a lot of joviality involved as, you know, because we were kids, you know, so mm-hmm. when I came back and got everybody back together, that's when I started, I went from making, you know, averaging a hundred to $200,000 a week. I was upwards near now close to three to $4 million a week. Because now my I'm going to Columbia. I'm making the lows. I'm arranging. I'm working everybody. And the way it works is, like I said, you don't get paid right away. And the reason for that is because you got to wait for the load to sell. Well, they have to have something to sell. So I bring the load in and I start sending it to Miami. But if you owe me $20 million for that particular load, I'm taking $20 million worth of that shit and I'm going to Naples with it. I'm going to stash it there. And when you start paying me, you give me 10 million, I give you 10 million of your shit back. You give me it all, I give you all your shit back. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. only a guarantee because if you lose that over there, we're going to get paid. Mm. I can make one phone call and that shit's sold. Yeah. You know, we're going to get paid. That was our guarantee to get paid in you know, like that. Uh, that was just part of another, you know, safety measure and, you know, involved in, in keeping everybody in line with what. So we're what doing. was the network? So beyond you, really the network, that's where it really spread 
So it gets into Miami and then into the clubs and then onward to uh, all over America, right? Yeah, yeah. Our responsibility all along was to just get it, you know, two different ways I worked and I understood how to work it ultimately was that for $175 a pound, I'll go to anywhere in the Caribbean you want your shit because I've got a connection there and I'll buy it for you and I'll put it on your doorstep over in Miami, like, you know, with those dead drops affairs for $175 a pound. Now, if you have a vessel that you want your crew to go to wherever and meet my connection, get loaded and bring it back, I'll come and unload it and bring it and put it on your doorstep for $145 a pound. Mm-hmm. So there was two different options that they could do for most of them opted for me just to do the whole thing because it yeah. was easy. It was just easier for everybody all around that way. But um, there was there were always there were always safety valves and guarantees built in. Like I told you about the keeping of the money until you pay me sort of shit. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Uh, with the drivers driving back and forth to Miami all day long. This is broad daylight. These houses are getting empty. I'm sure. And yeah. To Miami during the day because night times when we're getting low, we're loading them. Yeah. Uh, so we've got no less than 10, 12, sometimes more, depending on how much we're moving, different spotters. And all their job was to drive that route back and forth to the plaza and everybody's empty in staggered mm-hmm. positions where if anybody along the way managed to get stopped, their own, their sole purpose getting stopped would be to wait till whoever stops you gets between you and your car or truck or van or whatever it is. Throw that son of a bitch in reverse and mash the hell out of it. Pick out that front end i mean just beat the holy snot out of it because you know if you've got a van now that's got you know that weighs another maybe three thousand pounds more than it should yeah it's yeah want that fucking car like that but yeah you're not gonna outrun the radio but you can get far enough out of sight of him where he can't see you stop the damn thing right there in the middle of the road and get out and one of the spotters will pick you up because you, you already talked to him you already know where they're at yeah right yeah. nice picture get in that car and go let them right. have it. every car, every every car, truck, van, every vessel used is never run by the owner. Mm-hmm. It's always somebody else other than the owner. Okay. That way, if something should happen, like a guy gets stopped out on 41 on the way to Miami sometime or whatever the case may be. And it never did happen. I mean, we almost had a couple of close calls, but knowing that he's going to get stopped, all I would have to do is call the owner of the vehicle that he he's driving and say, you know, gigs up what he would do would immediately hang up from me call the police and say or you know i look out there and say i just looked out the yard uh driveway noticed my shit's gone man <laughs> my truck's gone, you know, my uh. gone. Oh, somebody stole it so that relieves him of any responsibility for whatever that might have been involved with because he it got stolen from it and he'll yeah. get it right got Boats you okay way. smart Boats confiscated they don't own them okay it was stolen your owner will get it back mm. yeah one nice. time he got a boat the owner got it taken from him. I mean, we brought a load in, and when I want to get too involved in it, but we had brought a load in in three different boats that we put up front, way up in the bow, and then the bow section hit it down below on three different boats, which is very difficult to do. But we would also bring traps in, and it's during the time we're bringing traps in, where if you load traps heavy toward the front of the boat, the boat will, you know, nosedive a little. Mm-hmm. So some empty boxes up you know, a big mountain of them and just layer one layer of traps over them. So it looks like a whole stack there. So the <laughs> stack would make the boat do this, but really there was nothing but cardboard boxes there. Right. right. So we were at night to unload this thing. Well, somebody walks by there at night, just walking at the dock, having it after restaurants, some old couple and they call the cops. They smell the shit. Boom. They take it long story short. The, the, 
the biggest, they only found, they got two of the boats, one of the boats they never found. One of the boats, the biggest of the, of, the, of them was a hardworking boat, beautiful boat called uh, Risky Business. Nice. And they, they wound up, you know, getting their pictures taken down below deck with the bales and they had all stacked on the dock, you know, it was big shit. And I had this friend of mine who was CIA turned U.S. Customs who, you know, was going to do a couple of shows with me. And then all these guys wound up being my friends after I got busted, you know, I mean, years later. But he shows me this picture of them down below. And I said, well, do you know the story, the rest of the story about that boat? He says, yeah, they, you know, held it, seized it, sent it to government auction. I said, yeah, well, there's the thing about that auction was that um, they had set three guys up there with the sole purpose of outbidding everyone there to buy that boat back. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, we could. We had the cash to buy. I mean, outbid anybody. I don't care what it costs. Yeah. Outbid to get that boat back. I got the exact same boat back, re-registered, and put it right back at the dock where they took it from. Only they renamed it Still Kicking. <laughs> that's True classic story. love that <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> yeah you know, it wasn't too long after that you know when we started working us as kids you know we worked several years that way then the, you know the shit came at us man and it came at us hard you know and we didn't know at the time that, that during uh that um um april oh no september 1st 1987 the federal sentencing guidelines were swapped over to mandatory minimums prior to that they were just judges discretion you got this you got so much you know and there was only so many ways they could sentence people at that time and i'll just give you a quick for instance the five daniels brothers when they were arrested they were my buddies who i grew up with that they were their dads and uncles you know there was five brothers mm -hmm. they're standing in front of the magistrate in miami being arraigned for their charges and you know and are um sentenced and the judge is once again reading over the list of seizures. A Netherlands Antilles holding company worth about $8 million in cash. And they had holdings, you know, property all over the Caribbean. Here in the United States, they had, you know, timeshares, hotels, motels, land, houses. They had cars, buses, airplanes and shit. They all used to fly around over us while we were doing a load. He didn't, he didn't have a pilot's license. He just had money to buy the plane and money to spend on the guy to show him how to fly the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was just, um, you know, reading off this. Plus, they seized 580,000 pounds of Colombian weed from these oh guys. Oh, my gosh. Like, who the hell's got a half a million pounds of shit laying around? Well, we do, you know. These yeah. guys do. <laughs> I know some people. <laughs> so the magistrate says to the first four brothers, you know, Craig, Craig, the youngest, this is his second time down. He's like, you know, judge me to the point of telling. This is your second time down, Yes, sir. Yes. So the judge, you can actually, he flips the pages and he's like, and he looks and he says, gentlemen, he says, he looks him right in the eye and he says, I have absolutely no idea how to sentence people like you. He says, there, there are no guidelines for people like you that, oh, I never knew you existed, you know, because of the money and the, the sheer volume of shit going on, man. And he, and, and, um, he looks at the first four brothers and he says, I'm going to give you 36 months. These six months, dude. That's what two and a half years, right? So he looks at because I mean, there's no guidelines for guys like that. He had absolutely yeah. no idea how to say, you know, he'd never come across that before, even as a magistrate. And he looks over at Craig and he says, You know, he says, Let me ride you again. It's your second time, Mr. Daniels. And Craig goes, Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I understand. You know, he's real like, you know, sorrowful like this. And yeah, the judge, you know, he takes the glasses off one more time. He says, Once again, Mr. Daniels, he says, I have never 
come across anybody quite like you. <laughs> he says, um, and he's looks, he looks him dead in the eye. He goes, now, sir, does, does five years sound like a long time to you? <laughs> oh my God. He's like giving him the option. Five years. These are the sentences that were being handed out. The wow. next year is when the mandatory minimums come into play. And that's when they started nabbing our asses because yeah. it was, you know, particular of events. And now we're thinking, no, we're just going to get what everybody else would get it. But no, 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 no. Example. If you got one indictment, it was 40 years. There was, there was four counts on each indictment. There was wow. a mandatory 10 years to life on each count and a million dollar fine attached to each one of those. I had four indictments. I had four counts on each indictment. That's uh, that's 160 years mandatory to life and $16 million in fines. And I went, what? <laughs> At my arraignment, there's me and five of my buddies standing next to me and my crew standing next to me. And when the judge told me that, <laughs> I swear to God, the smart ass little fucking guy standing next to me, daddy, he was a card. He looked up at the judge, and when she said $16 million, he looked up at her and goes, uh, why don't you make it 30 <laughs> <laughs> you know, Why you know, not? Yeah, you know, make it 30 the fucking, right. she, she looks, she got pissed, man. She, she, I mean, she was a badass, at, you know, magistrate, and, and she was appointed to her position as magistrate by Reagan. If that means oh god wow oh um, gosh that's yeah that's not a good she, sign <laughs> she, dude, she literally told me looked me in the eye and said i have a mission beyond my job mr mcbride and when my buddy made that crack she goes she threw her glasses off and she says mr mcbride she said you're in serious trouble mm. and i said you know what tell me about it serious trouble you want to give me 160 years to life Mm-hmm. And then fuckhead next to me, Ben in there, he's like, yeah, we couldn't get that shit in fast enough. <laughs> and I just, you know, I'm like, I'm like, shut up, man. Look at our lawyers. <laughs> all, all six of our lawyers are behind us and they're all going, shut the fuck up. You know, shut up. <laughs> he said, because he's thinking, well, what can I do? They can't eat me, you know. Mm-hmm. They can do all the other shit, but they can't eat me, you know. Yeah. But, that's what I wound up with, you know, ultimately in the beginning was 160 years mandatory life. And uh, they got me with just under 400,000 pounds in conspiracy. Now, and mind you, they didn't catch me with a fucking seed, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was all conspiracy. Mm. And the only surveillance really that they had on me or anybody on the upper echelon, they, know, they called it managerial. I was managerial. <laughs> Go figure. Um, or phone records. And by way of phone records only meant that, you know, I call Carlos one day and Carlos would call then right after we got hung up, he called Leo and after Leo, Leo will call me and just, you know, connect the dots through phone calls. That's all they had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Until they got my guys who used to run a chase boat, which is and just as the people on the road have a way out with cars and drivers, we call mm-hmm. spotters out on the high seas when we're got these loaded boats and they're only doing four knots through the water because you got you know you got nearly fifty thousand pounds on this goddamn thing and it ain't moving hardly at all mm-hmm. we've got what's called a chase boat riding right there alongside of us and um there's actually one in the picture of uh, of mine that's in my book um mm-hmm. and um, what that is is a boat that's got enough horsepower to where you know it'll probably do 70 80 miles an hour before you ask him and hits the seat man so if you know once we get the load on the captain's in the wheelhouse he's dialed in he's on radar man he's doing his job 
you know, he's checking and making sure. And if there's, a, if there's something on the radar that becomes a target that looks like it's moving toward us, we have a 50 mile, mile range. And as the target gets closer, he can shrink that down to 25 mm-hmm. to 20, to 15, just to make sure. And if that target looks like it's coming at us, we just get on that go fast boat and let him have the shit. And disappear. Because, because Billy had not on the boat. His dad did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so, Dad and say, it's your boat's been ripped off you know and so he, <laughs> it never came to that but we always have that escape well during right. one of my jobs i had hired this guy one of the local guys who'd been there forever in everglades man he was like one of the founding nearly one of the founding families he was part of that he got in trouble in columbia doing some cocaine bullshit which had nothing to do with any of us you know, you know, any of us, mm. government knew he was there, knew he was part of our crew, made a deal with him, got him out of Colombian prison, put him right back to work with us as, as a chase boat. That's wow. how they went following me around and getting to know what I was doing and, gotcha. you know, shit like that. And when it finally came time to, um, I had a 57,000 pound job that I was bringing up near, um, Pine Island, which is just a little bit north of us here in Fort Myers and between Everglades City and Fort Myers, um, Fort Myers. And um, half, my Everglades City crew was going to get half and the Pine Island crew was going to take half. So I split it up like that. Well, I went with the Pine Island crew because I had I knew my guys could work it without problems. I wanted to hang out with the Pine Island guys just to see how they worked, you know. So I went up there and long story short, we get about 100 150 pieces or bales rather you know as the boats are coming into this backwaters from the from the mother boat that we had it on and they're unloading it onto the docks and we're throwing it into a, a, a big box truck i had backed off into the woods out in a no bump up nowhere on pine island i mean there's nobody had any business being out there and we're loading this thing and i get about 150 pieces on the butt and, and the boat stopped Nobody's on the radio, and I'm thinking, well, I ain't right, you know. So I hear this guy who was one of my spotters out by the road. He says, "Hey, Timmy," he says a car just pulled in here, and, and you know, it stopped, it backed out, and went back the way it came. And I'm thinking, oh, that's not right, man. There's anybody out here. So you know, I made my way back up front, you know, through the woods out by the road, and you know, and I'm standing there, and he's telling me again. And as he's telling me, I'm kind of look behind me, and then everybody that was back there in the woods in the dock now is standing behind me because <laughs> they know there's some shit up that ain't right. And as this guy's telling me this, man, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, I can't tell you how many cars there must have been. I could hear them all coming down the road, you know, the sound that tires make on the roads. And mm-hmm. it's, it's dark, pitch ass dark. And all of a sudden I see just the beginnings of the headlights on the road. That's when everybody scattered, like you turn the lights on and cockroaches are gone, yeah. man. You know, so everybody's, you know, uh, majority of the guys, they're running this way because there's a big pine forest that you can like run forever in. And if you go this way, there's about five acres of, I don't know if you're familiar with what palmettos are, palmetto bushes, mm-hmm. but they're they, sharp. Don't, they don't get much higher than about four feet tall. Mm. You know, yeah. So cover there. And for some reason, I just, I didn't, had only a second to react. I ran this way. Everybody else ran this way to the woods. <laughs> I didn't get maybe 15 steps and here comes this first car and pulls in. And there was a shitload of them screeching it on that. And I just haunched down like this. And I'm, you know, and I can hear this whole cacophony of, you know, our finest, you know, police agencies and government agencies <laughs> going to work, right? And they're saying, there's some running over there. I'm the, there's running over there. Let's go get them. And I, you know, I hear all this shit going on. I'm right there. You know, I'm a, I can spit on me. I'm that close to him, right? Oh, 
my gosh. And I can see under the bushes, I can see this defeat. And um, it's probably like four in the morning, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, another hour and a half or, you know, the sun's going to start coming up. And if I can't get the fuck out of here, man, I mean, sun comes up, I'm right there. <laughs> I could look, I mean, all I've got to do is look over and see me sitting there. Yeah. That's how close I was, right? So the the entertainment goes on, if you will. And that Bronco backs out and it takes off. And in a little while later, it comes back and I can see as it opens the door, the interior light comes on. I see his feet hit the ground. And I'm mm-hmm. looking under the branches. And he shuts the door. I could hear it. And out front, I hear another vehicle pull up and stopped out in the road. And I hear a voice saying, what are you doing? What are you up to? And mm-hmm. the guy in the Bronco says, I want to walk back in there and, you know, and see what we got. And the guy out in the street goes, well, hang on. I'll walk back there with you. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck. Okay. You know, you know, go, go ahead. Go. You know, get back there. <laughs> I'll chat. The car was still running in the road, and I didn't know that he was the only fucker in the car. Yeah. You know, and, and now the sun's coming up now. I mean, I'm I'm smoked. I got to do something. And I just poked my head up, you know, up over those branches, and I looked. That car was empty. I got up, and I took off like I was shot out of a gun, man, and I ran my ass off till I couldn't barely breathe. You know, I'm through the bushes and through the jungle, through the woods. I'm running, man, and I just found a place and dove under these bushes and covered myself up with leaves and sticks and shit and i laid there all day listening to the helicopters and the fucking cars and the truck you know them bang and pulling my box truck out of the woods and i listened to everything going on and um what i'm up primarily at beginning beginning i'm i'm waiting for somebody to you know who's chasing me mm-hmm. you know yeah. after a few minutes i realized well fuck and we chasing me Whew, i got out of there so mm-hmm. I'm laying there as I, the day's wandering on and I can't come out of there till nighttime. You know, yeah. I can't come walking out of the place. So I hang out. I'm laying out there all day long, you know, and I'm laying there all covered up shit just around my eyes like this. And I kind of dozed off because I've been up since the night before. You know, I'm mm-hmm. fucking tired. Regardless of what's taking place, you know, I got away. Whew, you know, I'm yeah. resting. So I'm laying there and all of a sudden I hear this, you know, little kind of run- leaves crunching and shit real lightly. And I open my eyes up and I kind of, you know, I kind of look sideways like this. And there's a goddamn bobcat maybe two feet from me. Oh, my gosh. Big motherfucker. He's probably 80 pounds. I mean, it's a good size. It's like, oh, my God. Crouched down like this, you know, taking little steps at a time. Because he saw something there. But he didn't see me. I was covered up. You know, I think he might have saw my face. And when I opened my eyes, he saw my eyes and he stopped like this. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, I just spent the night, you know, running from the law. And now I'm going to get my asshole eaten off by this fucking thing. <laughs> like, I beat bad, but here we are. <laughs> there's no fucking way. You know, I started getting pissed. You know, there's no, oh, I got to deal with this fucker. And I just, for some reason, I just, you know, shut up out of there. I went, yeah, and all the leaves and branches went flying. This little, this fucking thing leaped about six feet in the air. Did three flips, I swear he did three half gainers in a twist, and he <laughs> ran off into the bush like he was shot out of a cannon. Man, I the fuck you're out like, Not thing. today, <laughs> that's great, <laughs> made it too far. So it's dark, time for me to go. And I walked about a half, I walked about four miles on the side of the road to this old fish house, Pine Island fish house. That, 2.30 in the morning, I think about when I got there and I'm picking, I'm standing off and, you know, there's lights on in the parking lot and the fish house's lights are on. I'm thinking, well, there's people are still here. What the fuck, man? Yeah. But there's no car, maybe one or two up next to the building. 
and I'm standing just in the shadows behind the lights of the parking lot, but there's a phone booth. This is before cell phones, obviously. There's a phone booth in the parking lot, 30 yards, not even in front of me. Mm. And I'm thinking, how the fuck am I going to get to this phone booth? Because <laughs> all the lights are on, right? And um, I start picking the shit off of me and cleaning myself up, you know, from the from my days of adventures. And and uh, all of a sudden, these two shrimp boats show up, and they their catch gets unloaded, and, and both crews from the shrimp boat line up at the phone booth to call for the rides home. Mm-hmm. Light goes on. I went, you know, kind of meandered my way down there and got in line with all the other guys. You're like rough day today, <laughs> guys, right? <laughs> 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 you know and uh, when it got my time on the phone i went right to the t section t-a-x uh, taxi and i just called the first one i came to and the guy answered the phone and i must have woke him up or some shit you know i told him where i was i said dude i need you you know come get i need to ride back to you know into punta gorda and i like now and he and I, and I didn't even look at the address where he was and he says do you know where i am dude and i said i'm alan gone from where you are and i said what look dude i said i don't have time to you know call anybody else i said just show up i'll give you six hundred dollars cash plus i'll give you your fare you know just come and get me yeah there you go and and it took a little doing he said you're not you know it's fucking with me now if i show up there you you know i'm I'm going after the owner of the fish (laughs) and i said dude just show up well as i'm talking to this guy in comes the sheriff's deputy's car this is like now it's like three in the morning here comes this sheriff deputy car through the parking lot. He goes in front of me like this, goes circles around behind me, and he goes <laughs> out the other entrance to the parking lot that way and goes back up the street. And you could have cut the end off a cigar with my butthole. I was like, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, and uh, he said, okay, I'm on my way. I hung the phone up and I just, you know, I hung out there bullshitting with the guys. It was about 40 minutes later. This guy showed up. First thing I did was like threw six $100 bills in his lap, got in the back seat, scrunched down and said, let's go. And he took off. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, that's how I got out of there. Yeah, I got, got to a hotel and got some, you know, got a night's sleep and shit like that, you know, but right. Uh, it was quite an experience. And that was, I think, I might have set a Guinness Book of World's Records during that that day out there because as I'm laying there in the weeds and after I'd gotten rid of that fucking um, bobcat, I hope it was a bobcat and it wasn't a panther or some shit. But, <laughs> um, you know, it had been a while, man. And I like, you know, I really had to take a dump. I, you know, I had to go bad. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, well, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere. So I, you know, I do my business. I'm thinking, well, and I got, you know, when I'm going to wipe my ass, when I'm going to wipe my ass with. Well, I got a pocket full of hundred dollar bills. Oh, it, cost oh. Me, it cost me eight hundred dollars to wipe my ass. Oh my god! <laughs> you might have broke a record. Probably one of the most expensive shits anybody's ever taken in the wood. <laughs> Hands down, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, after all of that, hence comes the investigation and all the shit. You know, one thing led to another, and you know, next thing you know, I'm in front of the magistrate with all this. You know, they, I I had been subpoenaed to the grand jury, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I called my attorney the minute this little weasel with those white shirt and black tie showed up my front door and handed me this goddamn thing, and I called my attorney, and you know, we met up there, and uh, you know, he gives me this card. I'm gonna take the fifth on every every time they open their mouth to you, just read off of this card, right? Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. I, I, you know, I want to incriminate 
myself. Well, they found out, you know, we're standing at the federal building outside the big doors to the grand jury room. They found out I was going to just plead the fifth on everything and they let me go. And wow. right then I- Because why not waste, I, you know, I, like, why waste their time at that point? Yeah, well, I'm also thinking, you know, that um, having them having done that, they really don't need me. They've got enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm you sure know, I think they were just in mind of maybe, you know, cap putting a little more icing on their fucking cake or some shit. When they found out they weren't going to get it, they didn't you know they, just, they didn't need it, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was just all, uh, you know, all negotiating with uh, about a million two hundred thousand dollar worth of lawyer to get me my, you know, uh, ultimately my, you know, I was in a way, you know, the, what they wanted was cooperation, you know, but yeah. when my discovery was given to me, it was a stack of paper this big of everybody that that said, Tim McBride, Tim McBride, Tim McBride, you know, and um, the only way that I could give them anything of any value to them, what they wanted was substantial cooperation was who is my guys in Miami? Who's in Jamaica? Who's in Venezuela? <laughs> who's in <California>? Shit. <laughs> you know, the three different times I worked for uh, Noriega, they're not going to find out about this one. You know? Yeah, <laughs> because right. even though, through all the years of doing this in such a nonviolent fashion, you throw one of these guys under the bus, man, and they're going to come at you and do what they're Violence really, will very, be there. they're really very good at doing. <laughs> Trust yeah. me. So um, I couldn't do that. But I could. What I did wind up doing was... Um, you know, they talked me out one day and there were two treasury agents, uh, a man and a woman with brown, identical brown vested suits. They put their little gold badges up against the window and I went, oh, shit. Well, this U.S. prosecutor, Susan Daltuba, is in the next room and she hears me say that. She comes busting through the door. She goes, no, 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 Timmy, this is not what you think it is. And I said, well, Susan, tell me what I think this is, because if this is about cooperation, just take my ass back through there and take me home to my cell, you know, because it ain't happening. And she goes, no, no, no. It's not about cooperation. What it's about is if you're willing to tell us how you were able to do this for all these years and we couldn't catch you. Mm. <laughs> I, said, nice. well, I, could, I can tell you how dumb you got. You got to. First thing, I, a couple of questions I asked these two agents were, were, you know, do you understand the geography of Everglades City and Chukaluski? Oh, yeah. And I said, well, how many roads in and out of there are there? Well, there's one. Yeah, there's one fucking road and i said now, how many direct links from that one road are there to miami there's one uh, yeah one. and i said that one way in and out of there and one way to get to miami i said how do you think we got those millions of pounds over there i didn't take them on the backs of pelicans and fucking porpoises man they went right down that one goddamn road and nine times out of ten my guys are waving at you as they're going back <laughs> but like, but like we were acting on pretty normal throughout those days. So, <laughs> Timothy, yeah. can you uh, let our listeners know where they can go to first off find your book, but also um, any social media or websites that you have? Um, sure, absolutely. My uh, Instagram for one is at Original Saltwater Cowboy. Um, follow along and see what I'm doing, like with you know, with guys like yourself and you know other gigs that I've got going on. My brand, I've got a Saltwater Cowboy brand coming out in Oklahoma, and I'm working on one in uh, in California as well. My book, the first edition hardcover versions of my book are very rare and very hard to get a hold of of any you know decent condition, but they can be had. They're more than likely library returns, but those are first editions and they're rare and they're valuable. You know, they're going to they're asking hefty prices on, on Amazon as much as over $200 for that book. Wow. People are selling wow. 
which I get nothing for. You know, I got it the first time. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 But, it, but it, it's uh, a testament to how how strong the story is. Yeah. 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 The, the demand for the story was such that they had they they knew what they could command for the book for the book. Should someone actually want a first a, re, a first edition, which you can't get only if you find somebody like that or you can't get one of any, you know, of any you know, any decent shape. But um, that's what prompted my publisher six months ago to go ahead. And now I'm in my second printing. My second edition is paperback, though. Okay. And the only difference between that and the hardcover is that one's paper and one's hardcover. Okay. That's it. There's a Kindle version, which is very cool. There's an Audible version, which is done by a very cool guy by the name of Wes Talbot, who prior to my book, which was his 32nd book for Audible, he'd done mostly Stephen King's books. Nice. He's got a real, really cool voice. He does a wonderful job. I mean, an awesome job. Um, but coming from the guy that wrote it, I miss my own inflection in the in the telling of the story, you know. Of but course. he does, you know, he does an amazing job too. There's also an MP3 disc as well, you know, for okay. um paperbacks, $21.99, hardcovers. I think there's there's some on there for 125 bucks. You might get a decent one for that. Okay. MP3s are eleven bucks and seventeen bucks for the uh for the Kindle, I think, something like that. But uh yeah, go on Amazon and uh have at it, man. You know, it's it's, it's yeah. very much one thing to tell these stories as I do, but it's very much another to get people to just push the button, get a download, yeah. you know, you don't care. You know, right. Well, and that's that's what the cannabis the, the cannabis community is about too. We we support one another, and you know, a story like this, the cannabis cannabis community sees it, takes it in, sees how important and uh amazing it is and yeah i you pay 17 dollars or you pay 24 bucks and you buy your damn book and you enjoy it and you support you and everybody that helped you put it together and and you get the history of the uh, caribbean cannabis industry from somebody who was actually there you yeah, know and yeah. generations of families who like i said weren't the only pot haulers out there but were able to do it enough and significant enough and sophisticated enough to integrate it into a way of life and and into a nonviolent family oriented fashion from whether it be of this country or whatever country of origin, you know, the mm -hmm. stuff was, you know, and people to understand that it can be done that way. And it was done that way and not to go into it with their first, you know, experience thinking they're contributing to what's happening on our Southern border. That's the last thing I want for them to think about. I want them right. to go into it. this comfortable, easy going feeling of that cool Rasta dude standing in 200 acres of Roger Budman. You know, yeah. just having <laughs> or that that, you know, that cool little Colombian dude in his white cotton blouse and hat and, and pants with the family out there just tending to buds, man. And that cool, easy, breezy feeling. That's the way I want them to be introduced to it. That's what That's my awesome. story gives me. That's how I tell it. Just like that. And I appreciate people like yourself and, and Stephanie, man. You guys are just awesome. And I can't thank you enough. Hey, we appreciate you, man. We actually heard a little bit about your story a little while back, um, and it was just really great to talk to you again and kind of just hear some of those like really awesome highlights. And I know a lot of people are going to want to hear about this. Uh, so thanks so much again. And, uh, yeah. and uh, don't worry about any spoilers, you know, that it may come out of me with regards to the book, because like I said, the book is 86,000 words. I wrote 250. So there's plenty that didn't get it didn't get in there so <laughs> for sure yeah yeah i really appreciate you man uh again for for the unique way that you did what you did yeah and you know hey, hey, I'm again, 
I've got to follow up. If you'll excuse me, I'll follow up with that, that with, you know, with the simple fact that, you know, and I like people to know that, you know, I'm humble enough to be able to say that I didn't do this all myself. It couldn't have been done by just one person. It took, it took hundreds of men and women with brass fucking balls. I was yeah. able to help facilitate the method by which they were able to work. But mm -hmm. I was one cog in a very giant fucking wheel, man. Yeah. You know, and that's what we all are. And, and it's true. Down, I give my props to the guys and the gals that were, you know, they're right alongside me risking their asses. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to keep up with us and check to see when we will release new episodes, feel free to follow us on our socials at To Be Completely Blunt Podcast. You can find me, Steph, on my socials at Steph on FM and Rick at Mr. Underscore F-U-N-G-I 420. And please make sure to hit that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it. Highway Horticulture, paving the way for everything cannabis. Find out more at highwayhorticulture.com.